Good morning and welcome to Beyond Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Ke Yiliu, joined today by Kuli Sharma and Vicky Lee. Beyond Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond headlines of our daily news, giving you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines. That's B Y O N D underscore headlines. Today we have two guests joining us to talking about the telecommunication monopoly in Canada. Professor Fenwick McAvoy from Concordia University and Mr. Joe Russell from Talos. With the ongoing merger between Sean and Rogers and the recent service outage experienced by Rogers users, we have been raising concerns within Canada's monopolistic telecommunication industry. For today's podcast, we try to explain the current landscape of the industry and explore the existing problems within the telecommunication systems. Additionally, we will discuss the government's role in regulating the industry. Our first guest is Fenwick McElvey. He's an associate professor in information and communication technology policy at Concordia University, Montreal. He's co-director of the Applied AI Institute and leads machine agencies at the Milia Institute. He's the author of Internet Daemons, Digital Communications Possessed, and co-author of the permanent campaign, New Media, New Politics. Fenwick, we are so thrilled to have you on this episode on telecommunication policy and telecom industry. It's my real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Now, before we get into the specifics of the issues and concerns that we wish to discuss today, could you first provide a broad overview of the current landscape of Canada's telecommunication industry for our listeners? Who are the major players and how does the industry basically look like today? Yeah, thanks, Kurti. And I think it's important and helpful to just think about how broad the term telecommunications is and what that means when we talk about it in Canada. Telecommunications refers to your home internet, your home phone, often increasingly your home security, and your mobile phone. So this is all part of the telecommunications industry that impacts you. Increasingly, though, when we talk about telecommunications, it means just beyond more than just your home services. It also means critical infrastructure. So the way that you're able to do your banking or able to pay your interact fees, this all depends upon the telecommunications sector. And increasingly, with concerns around kind of cybersecurity, telecommunications sectors are sectors increasingly responsible for protecting you know, your personal information as well as protecting your you know access to the the internet to make sure it's secure. And so that's a really important part of making sense of the sector is it's one that's kind of really essential for many of your many of our listeners, your listeners' everyday lives, you know, their 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 basic human rights, and I think also the kind of access to kind of critical information. And so the main firms and that Canada is really a history of attempting to bring about competition in a very concentrated and naturally concentrated industry. So Canada for the past 30 years has been committed to the idea of a successful telecommunication sector being delivered by the private sector competing over the development of comp- of competitive infrastructures. And this is the paradigm that we talk about as com- facilities-based competition. And so we have a few main firms, so Bell, Telus, Rogers, as well as in Quebec, Quebec Core are the big or the major players in this sector in Canada. 
And really, the the tension has been is that Canada's commitment and really its its industrial policy and its governance regime has really tried to support a competitive marketplace, and that's really in the recent years kind of fallen on hard times. And it's part of the kind of shift we're in right now. We have a kind of largely a duopoly in regional markets between cable and DSL providers. Most of these firms are fairly vertically integrated. So we see content providers also being carriers or telecommunications provider. Much of the infrastructure that is being built is actually co-shared. That There's a decline in the number of independent ISPs. And so that we see fewer actual competitors and more what we call flanker plans or the appearance of competitive firms, and as well as growing concerns about cybersecurity and network resilience. And so this is this kind of moment where we have a few players that we've been trying to grow as a country for decades, and that there's been little movement on that kind of competitive expansion. So now we're in a kind of moment of kind of compromised where there's contested competition, and I think it's debatable how much competition is taking place, but certainly there is competition between these big major firms and public pressure to kind of ensure that these firms are complying with their mandates. And this has, I think, largely been the kind of context where we have these few firms facing a lot of public pressure to bring down prices around mobile internet and mobile phone services. I want to come back to the question of competition, but you said the word history and it sort of rang a bell. Could you take us back a little bit and talk about how Canada's telecom industry sort of evolved into this monopoly or regional duopoly that you talked about? How from concentration in a few state-owned companies to a turn towards privatization to these voracious mergers that we are now looking at, how has the history sort of shaped the present? When I teach the history of telecommunications Canada, I usually describe about three eras. So initially, there was a period of, of competition and consolidation. And this is when telecommunications came about, and, and really cons- consolidation in a few firms. And I always give the example of Bell Canada, which when Canada was building its railroads, which I think are really critical for this history, and the railway, can't, Bell was given rights to use the long lines built along the railways to offer long distance services. And so early on, there was a period of of competition where we saw a few firms emerge and become dominant. And that period led to a second phase of public utilities and a conversion of these kind of few private companies into regional telecommunication providers. So I'm originally from New Brunswick. So I think of back my youth about NBTEL. There's also... um, out west, uh, Sastel, and other regional firms. And these collaborated largely to to deliver telecommunication services in Canada through the Stetnor Alliance and other projects. And so we had a long period of of public utilities approach to telecommunications, and beginning in the 1980s with the turn towards regulatory liberalism and and, and really, I think, quite tangibly, the belief in uh, market-based solutions or what we talk about as neoliberalism led to a desire to shift away from these public corporations and public utilities towards private services and private utilities. And this is still the kind of epoch we're in right now where we've let these public firms be sold off 
become their own companies, and then merged back into a, a few smaller firms themselves, the largest being kind of Bell Canada as, as a conglomeration now of, of these original utilities that kind of all merged back together. So that, that's kind of that history. And alongside, we've seen the rise of cable and cable providers that typically offered television moving into the internet sector, as well as, you know, new disruptions that are taking place, such as Elon Musk Starlink, which is promising new opportunities to connect to the internet through a satellite system. That's all part of this kind of current moment we're in uh, around a kind of private solution to telecommunic delivery of telecommunication services. But I'm so glad you you picked up and you raised this uh, question of uh, railroads, because I think it sort of helps us in understanding the present digital divide. It has a lot to do with the railroad system, which was eye-opening and interesting. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about what everybody's concerned about, the high phone bills that Canadians pay. And more often than not, the most talked about solution is competition. But what we see now is not so much competition with the Rogers and Shaw mergers. The dominance of the big three will only intensify. But the merger, the way it played out, seemed so complex, so opaque, and so protracted that regular Canadians like myself, we we just uh, we couldn't understand it after a point of time. But there were people commenting that perhaps the protractedness was because the government was trying to stall the merger for as long as possible to prevent further consolidation in the industry. My question is, is this the case? And if this is, is delaying the best the government could do uh, to prevent a monopoly in the in the industry? I think I can answer your question in two parts. And there's two separate issues to kind of unpack here. One is whether competition is ultimately the right answer to ensuring that other objectives like universal access, affordability, I think dealing with quite directly when you're talking about the the railway system, I think part of this is also the colonial history of telecommunications in Canada that has systematically led to some communities being more connected and often indigenous communities being disconnected from these infrastructures. And I think credit part of how I understand this to work of indigenous communities to help me understand all the work that they've done to be connected. And that's something I always carry with me when I talk about telecommunications. The part of it, uh, and especially Cree communities in Ontario. So I think that's been always an important part. So one sense is like, how do we think about the right regulatory solutions to competition. And then the second part of this, is Canada's framework for competition policy robust enough for doing its job? And that's, I think, where we see this kind of intersection taking place. Because there is a real question about whether competition is the right answer here. And, and maybe what we want is just more regulatory oversight and capacity of setting rates of ensuring that there's a minimum standard for broadband accessibility, like a minimum price, as well as governments themselves taking initiatives like taking tax off your cell phone bill as an essential service or having it so that certain uh, programs, public subsidies are actually ensuring that there's public access or greater public access to the internet. And I think that, so that's kind of this one question is that competition I think is standing in for this this greater debate about whether we see, as the United Nations and other firms see, that you know access to the internet is a central human right. How do we mandate that? How do we deliver that? But what we've kind of 
gone to has said, well, the way we're going to do that is we're going to have competition. And this has been the enduring and I think very consequential paradigm in Canada is we've invested so much resources and efforts to fostering competition as if it's an inevitable solution to achieving these human rights values that we kind of tie to telecommunications. Which gets into the second issue about the Roger Shaw merger and more broadly is how capable Canada is at ensuring there's effective competition between key firms. And this is something that extends well beyond the telecommunication sector. Right now, there's a lot of concern about price gouging on the part of grocery firms and the consolidation of the market, you know, market and those kind of few grocery chains in Canada. And so that gets into this kind of second question is whether Canada has the kind of apparatus to ensure mergers like the Roger Shaw mergers is properly accounted for. And that's why there's been stalling because in part, that's become a kind of critical moment of trying to bring about reforms and competition policy to ensure that this merger is being vetted properly. And I think there's debates about that because I think the immediate example would be when the CRTC was considering this Roger Shaw merger, they only were looking at parts of the business. And as of my recollection was the broadcasting parts of the business when they were saying whether this would have an inverse or inverse effect on competitiveness. And that's, I think, an indication that the way that these this merger is being measured and measured institutionally might be out of sync with the live consequences of that merger. And so that's the second part of why there's been delays. I think there's been efforts to use this as a critical case to bring about better and reforms to competition policy in Canada, which are really thoroughly needed. Okay. Talking about the delay and the fourth deadline, uh, I think now that the final say or the final approval rests with uh, Minister Champagne, and he said that uh, his priority is going to be in on delivering lower wireless prices uh, when he weighs the final approvals, say it goes through. Does the deal going forward sound like a good telecommunication policy? Can it uh, set a good precedent to mergers that may happen in future years. How does this sort of alter the telecommunication policy in Canada going forward? Well, I think this represents this compromise position I kind of mentioned at the start, where what we'll see is, is a move away from competition as a defining objective mm. and more towards trying to carve out modest, consumer-oriented objectives, like lower cell phone bills. And that's, I think, a fairly modest agenda for the telecommunications sector. It certainly, I think, is not addressing, you know, deeper questions about digital divides and access. What I think we'll see is that because of nothing other than public pressure, modest decreases in cell phone bills, uh, which which we observed and have been observing largely because of kind of public campaigning to to raise this issue of the cost and affordability, we'll see uh, a compromise being struck where consolidation will continue to occur so long as there's seen to be modest price benefits for consumers. And and what we've seen in the evidence in the wall reports that, that have come out is that there's been a slight de 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 decrease in cell phone bills over time. Uh, changes slightly, and that's kind of hard to entirely parse, but it's not been dramatic. It's been kind of modest drops. And I think that that's, that's really enough of a talking point that we'll see these deals potentially go through because it allows the government to, to say it's lowering 
cell phone bills, even though that drop isn't something that's necessarily that tangible for everyday Canadians. The compromise doesn't sound very bright, uh, but uh, you also mentioned a lot about how the narrative in Canada is saturated by the discussion and the focus and the emphasis on competition. Now, if competition is not the solution to, of, to all our telecom uh, issues, what is? Well, the distinction is often between facilities-based competition and service-based competition, where you would have crown corporations or public utilities rebuilding or maintaining public infrastructures or large monopolies obligated to share their infrastructures with third parties and independents. And that's sort of what we have in Canada. We have independent ISPs that have access to you know, critical infrastructure of incumbent ISPs. I think the example would often be your listeners tech savvy, which is regrettably one of the last remaining of these types of independent ISPs. And what's happened really is that that was the, the program in some ways, was the idea that we're going to let this to take place in the service of competition. That hasn't happened because there's been a consolidation. There's not many. My own independent ISP, eBox, which is in Montreal, has just been acquired by Bell. And I'm getting lots of reminders to sign up to Bell's Fiverr services now. And I think that that's an indication of just that paradigm not working. So if we're trying to talk about change, one thing would be to ensure that there was access to new entrants to be able to use and sustainably use infrastructure of large incumbents to deliver and compete on service delivery and trying to shift it from a facilities-based program, which is about delivering infrastructure, to trying to compete around service and service delivery. Another kind of direction would be a change of governments themselves to really kind of think about their relationship to telecommunications. So I think taking taxes off critical communications services and really kind of finding a line between, say, poverty programs and poverty alleviation programs and the fact that there needs to be mandates in, in uh, with telecommunications access. So really kind of thinking about that more directly. I think the other part, and, and I think telecommunications firms have a right to, 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 to be critical of how they've been set up in a certain way, because one of the ways the governments have, governments have really increased their coffers and increased their revenues is through the sale of wireless spectrum. And many of the firms have kind of mortgaged themselves out to maintain their competitive advantage by paying, you know, huge fees for the wireless market. And when we have only a few players, really what's happening is those costs are being downloaded, I think, on cell phone providers to pay for that access. And so another shift here that could take place would also a new approach to wireless spectrum away from a auction model towards trying to ensure access to spectrum was delivering or encouraging uh, new innovation in, in either mobile wireless delivery or mobile internet delivery. And I think that those are kind of examples where we could see either modest moves towards more service-based competition, or I think more direct activities where the government of Canada is becoming more involved. Long ago, there's proposals for Canada Post per se to be reformed to offer more uh, internet-like services or, or being like hotspots like the community access program from long ago. And so I think the, the the last option would be something more around building or participating in the production of public utilities uh, around internet services, which I think is ambitious and scary and certainly one that's kind of risky for governments, but I think also raises 
you know, important questions about how we've let the internet be built in Canada. And if it's infeasible to think about or consider public utilities, I think that's a really significant consequence of the turn towards a markets-based approach. The things that you just said made so much more sense. And it sort of also allows us to shift our focus from competition to our focus on what actually needs to be done, especially in the realm of service delivery. But I want to uh, know whether there are, because we know that this is natural monopoly and uh, things globally are going to be more or less uh, same, if not completely uh, similar to what we have in Canada. But do we have any effective and efficient telecom model in other countries that Canada can sort of learn from? I think there's been interesting work in New Zealand at trying to foster service-based delivery, as well as I think and it's quite controversial because it's been so politicized, but the Australian government's attempts to build a national fiber backbone, neither of those are ringing success stories, but I think demonstrate at least the opportunity toward governments being more engaged in delivering critical infrastructure and taking that responsibility. I think even in the United States, you're also seeing, I think, stepping up in terms of measurement and, and work in measurement. So talking about effective broadband maps and the broadband mapping that's taking place. So when we're talking about competitiveness, I think one of the challenges, particularly the challenges is, is being an expert here, is is around data and the contentiousness of data. And so when we talk about how competitive it is, what type of services being delivered, affordability. This is one of the points that the CRTC has historically maintained a data collection responsibility. There's been concerns about how effective that's been in recent years. And I think that that's another part is even trying to establish measures of goals that we're trying to achieve around the, the broadband sector. This would be a second kind of point as well as kind of government investment. I'm curious if we can talk about India here because we have a similarly structured telecom industry in India with the key dominating players. But the prices were really low, especially when compared to Canada uh, because of predatory pricing, perhaps. This makes me think that low prices or reduction in prices is not necessarily a hallmark of competition alone. Well, Kirti, I think first off, that's a brilliant comparison. I think one of the things to encourage is more discussion of where Canada can compare itself to. And I think particularly the distinct, like India and Canada are good test cases, both with similar kind of histories as British colonial states, but also ones that have, you know, probably, and I'm not an expert, but I would really encourage that because I think that's that's the type of thing we see because a lot of the time we spend ourselves, you know, comparing our situation in the United States, which is a dramatically different context. Certainly with Europe, as well as with India, I think there's important points of comparison. And that, I think, is really one part if we're trying to advance this. Second thing I'd say is that it's it's interesting hearing about India is that one part of what's going on in Canada, which I think really gets to this under intuitiveness of what's taking place is the rise of flanker brands, which are most kind of evident in the cell phone services where you have Rogers offering Fido, Bell, Virgin, Telus, Kudu, Kudo. Videotron, Fizz. 
And these are all the flanker brands that make it look like there's a number of different cell phone providers, yes. which are really actually coordinated and using the same networks. So that I think is really where we will get into a concern where it, it, it consolidation in the market, good or bad. And I think there's, you know, I think that, you know, will, will, won't be recognizable because of a turn towards flanker brands. And I think a problematic turn towards you know, branding and marketing as a way of papering over deeper concerns about the kind of structures of the Canadian telecommunication sector. It does sound like it's a deceptive picture. You think that there's competition, but there's only the big three, really. Well, and I think one part to always look for is these moments of coordination. And that's one part is that it's really interesting where the, the prices don't differ dramatically. And often, sometimes you'll see when you're, you know, when you're talking about like rate cutting, occasionally you'll see this moment where someone cuts a rate and all the firms follow it and then mm. they kind of rise back up. But I think it's important to pay attention to just the, the the comparability of offerings on the table here. And that's, I think, one one part of these moments where you see a few number of firms acting in ways that appear coordinated. And it's hard to make sense of what's taking place there, but certainly it's it's not necessarily competition. It's more actually cooperation to keep prices at a certain point. And the same has been said, and I think, and I like going back to the grocery sector because I think it, it gets to this kind of competition policy and some of the consequences of concentration, where at similar times when they, there was a coordinated cut to the emergency, it seemed like a coordinated cut. I Yeah, and I just want to, it seems like a coordinated cut to the emergency ways bit emergency ways benefits all at the same time and these are the moments where like the flanker brands i think are important to pay attention to is how much distinction and difference they have than the prices being offered by the the main family brand mm -hmm. and another thing talking about brands it brings me to the idea of bundling so you're one person you're using wi-fi you're using your phone bill and you don't want to go to 10 different service providers you would want to stick to one and yeah, I think I think it's, it's it's helpful to me why and I'm like why what is the benefit of being a telecommunications specialist and I think trying to make sense that telecommunications is weird and unlike other types of products that we want to pay attention to. And I the example I give is that for for my ISP it's it's now been bought by Bell and I'm trying to figure out whether I can switch or not. And the work to be done to switch to another ISP. It's just like, it's killing me. It's taking a lot of time and I'm, and I only have one, and I only have one service, right? I'm kind of a core, sort of a cord never. And I don't have, I don't have a mobile phone with them. So it should be a, a relatively easy switch. And even that I'm so lazy to get it off the ground. And I think that's also what you're raising with the bundling, I think is really part of the way that that we really want to kind of emphasize this kind of need for consumer protection because it's really hard to switch. It's really hard to kind of negotiate your way out when you're so dependent upon that company and so much would change. I don't know about you, but I always have a, I have a friend who's like really good <laughs> at negotiating and they're the ones that figure out some way we're going to customer retention where they can get the lower rate. And that I think speaks to, you know, part of this kind of hidden world, the hidden world of actually what is prices and, and how much 
there's transparency in, in what's the lowest rate or what are the rates that that companies are willing to accept in order to make sure they don't lose a customer. And I, and I think that that world like bundling, switching is all, I think, part of the nuance about understanding why competition is complicated into the telecommunication sectors and maybe not the answer because really it might be better contract law and ensuring that you have guarantees for rates of services or better transparency. There's also been a push for decades to actually have nutrition labeling on your broadband service. So you actually know what you're getting. These are all things that that I think as someone slightly depressed about the telecommunications sector who's, you know, not who's watched it for a long time and just seen a lot of not a movement. Some of these simpler solutions I don't see a lot of movement on. And okay. and that's a big question for me is is what's really going on because we can talk all day about, you know, competition of the big firms, but simpler regulatory reforms, and particularly regulatory reforms at the CRTC you know, around transparency or contracts, you know, or even taking the tax off essential services like mobile phones or home internet, I think really could drive immediate change. And we haven't seen a lot of movement on that. Once again, that is Professor Fenwick McAvoy, who joined us for discussion of telecommunication monopoly in Canada. Thanks for tuning in for Beyond the Headlines. Remember, you can join our conversation on Twitter at Beyond the Headlines. Checking us on our website, www.beyondheadlines.net, or follow us on Instagram. This is Beyond Headlines. You've been listening to a conversation about the telecommunication monopoly in Canada, and we are joined by guests Professor Fenwick McAvoy and Professor John Rosa. Thank you for tuning in, and remember to add your voice to the debate by sending us a comment on Twitter, at Beyond Headlines. This is part two of a two-part interview on Canada's telecom monopoly. Our second guest is Joe Rossell. Joe Rossell is the Director of Regulatory Affairs at Telus Communications. He leads a portfolio of research projects in areas such as rural broadband, internet affordability, and etc. Previously, Joe was a Project Director at the Council of Canadian Academics, where he led more than a dozen multi-year expert panel research and policy assessments. Joe has a Master of Philosophy in Economics from Oxford University, and his research interests include behavioral economics, poverty, innovation, and artificial intelligence. It's so nice to have you, Joe, with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Vicky, for that uh, that very kind introduction. It's a, it's a real <laughs> honor and a pleasure to be here. I've, I've listened to a few of your uh, episodes, and you've had some pretty amazing guests, so real honor to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. Then um, I guess we'll just start with uh, our first question. Canadians have long been told that they're paying the highest, some of the highest wireless rates in the world, perhaps maybe 16 or 17 times more than the least expensive countries, according to a 2019 report. I want to ask the big question. Why? Why is this the situation? Yeah, so that that's that's a great question. I mean, I, I get where this question is, is coming from. I mean, it, it's people's lived experience. Uh, that they pay a lot for their cell phone. They pay a lot for their their home internet. I mean, I hear this from my parents, <laughs> from like my friends, my family. Uh, I mean, we've learned this in focus groups online, etc. And I mean, we saw this during the pandemic, and it will become increasingly more so. Like connectivity, whether home internet or wireless connectivity, is so crucial to people that this is just a, a budget item like a line item each month that you just you can't you can't afford to not have it so it's not something that you can 
you, you can kind of sidestep. So, I mean, I, I get when people say that, that they feel like they are, they are paying too much uh, and that it's, that it's more than they're paying in other countries. I mean, Vicki, if I was to ask you, do you want to pay less for your phone? You're going to say yeah. yes. <laughs> now, if I asked you, do you want to pay less for your, uh, your housing, your transportation, your food, tuition? Yes. I mean, you might also say yes to those things. And that isn't to make light of it, but it's more that this is a, a, this is a crucial thing for all people to have. And they feel like they pay too much for it. And that's kind of common across many, many products. So like, but from a policy perspective, we at least need to add in, you know, national statistics and rigorous, valid studies into the mix to kind of understand what is going on in, in Canada. The, the lived experience of people, those are important proof points, but it's not enough. It's not enough for policy. So if you look at the 16 to 17 times number, which comes from a, a, a particular study, which I'm, I'm happy to spend some time like discussing the, the, the issues with that study, although we may it's a methodological discussion, so we may bore some of your audience. Um, but like in stark contrast to, to that statement and what is in that study, ICED's own wall report, which is an international comparison of prices across country, positioned Canada as having prices that are lower than the United States and lower than Japan. Um, and that is a study that does not take into account the quality of the networks. It doesn't take into account the types of plans that people have, unlimited plans, for an example. It doesn't take into account uh, Canada's higher costs. And that Canada's prices are now lower than in the United States and Japan is a result of Canada's wireless prices declining 30% over the last couple of years. And those data come from Statistics Canada and have been cited by the minister himself. So uh, this, this idea that Canada's prices are way higher than everybody else's in the world does just not comport with national statistics and, and high quality uh, studies. I mean, maybe the most simple way to answer like, why would prices be somewhat more elevated in Canada potentially? It's, it's really two, two core pieces. It's the quality of, of the service offering you're getting and it's the cost. So if you look at the quality, Virtually all Canadians have access to home or wireless internet. Uh, and that's a pretty amazing thing in a country like Canada, which is very big, very cold, high population uh, dispersion. Um, and can Canadians on the wireless side and on the wireline side, on the wireless side in particular, benefit from the best quality network or one of the best quality networks in the entire world. We have the best network in the G in the G20, a network that rivals the, the, the networks in, in, in South Korea. So Canadians are getting great value for, for what, they, what they're spending. And then Canadian operators face costs that are twice the average costs in the G7, uh, driven by spectrum prices, which spectrum is a key resource for delivering wireless connectivity, spectrum prices that are 400% the OECD average. And then Canadian operators and consumers face the high cost of devices. So the high cost of your actual cell phone, these things are $1,500 to $2,000 a month. There's no markup on these cell phones in Canada because we face a, a global duopoly with only Apple and Samsung to buy from. So there's that cost piece. So when you step back, I mean, I, I get, like I said at the start, I, I totally get this. You can feel like you're paying a lot and there's, there's poor quality studies out there that support that perspective. But when you look at the national statistics that are cited by ICED, 
And when you look at rigorous, well-controlled studies that take into account quality and costs, then the idea that Canadians are paying prices that are that much higher than other international countries turns out to, to just not be the case. Mm -hmm. I want to dig deeper into the competition that you talked about. As we see now in the Canadian market, there are some problems facing, you know, new competitions entering this uh, oligopoly or you call it monopoly market, right? So what are some of the problems that are preventing small firms from entering as, you know, independent operators of telecommunication? Yeah, so I think it's useful to take a, a maybe a global perspective here first that, um, Tele the telecoms industry across all countries, um, that industry has high barriers to entry. So, I mean, regulation is complicated in the space. There's high infrastructure costs. I mean, high spectrum prices, economies of scale. I mean, th these factors inhibit entrance to telecom markets all over the world. That's why when you look across all countries, countries either have three or four national operators Canada having three national operators. So that's kind of the, that's the, the truth in every country around the world. So there's nothing particularly significant to Canada. In fact, what is actually happening in Europe, for instance, where there are more smaller independent internet service providers is that is, it's making the market structure in Europe somewhat unsustainable. So Ericsson just laid off 8,500 workers, and the, the head of the European Commission has said that this uh, heavy price competition is not allowing operators to raise sufficient revenue to be able to invest and build out the network. And we're in the middle of the 5G era. 6G will happen. You know, you need to bring fiber to everybody's, everybody's homes. So the idea of having more independent small operators is in Canada could put us in a position like Europe without the uh, without raising enough capital to invest in the network and now that market becoming potentially uh, unsustainable. I would say that in, in Canada, I don't think there are any any barriers to these small operators. Um, if anything, when you look at the spectrum side of the equation, ISED has been using what are called set-asides uh, for more than 15 years. This is where you set aside a, 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 an amount of spectrum for non-national players to be able to deploy their networks um, throughout the country. And when you set aside that spectrum, it's auctioned in a set-aside set aside auction, so the prices are a little bit lower, to try to give some of these smaller independent companies an opportunity to compete with the larger national operators. Um, but what has happened is that spectrum has not been deployed for the most part, especially in rural parts of the country. And these companies are, 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 not, are not building out in, in rural parts of the country. Um, so you're just not, you're not seeing the development of those smaller independent operators because the, the, the business case just is not there in rural parts of Canada. Where you do see these operators is in urban areas, and there are many of them. Most urban areas have eight, nine, ten plus operators that you can, uh, that you can, you can choose from, and they put downward pressure on price, potentially, 
Uh, but like I was saying, there's no opportunity then to collect enough revenue to be able to invest in the network. Um, and it's the investment in the network, which is what is really essential. That's why all Canadians have access to, to the internet and to wireless connectivity, why the networks are the highest in the world, because we have a, we have a facilities-based comp competition framework in Canada uh, that, is, that, is, that is motivated on ensuring that operators invest in the network, which is like, if the objective of telecom policy is to ensure that all Canadians have access to the best possible networks and wherever you live, um, then that has to be the focus as opposed to trying to push on smaller independent new operators in, in network. So, I mean, I think that uh, Canada has tried to encourage new operators, but it has not been particularly effective. And we wouldn't expect it to be particularly effective given international experience. Mm -hmm. So speaking of service delivery of these large companies, uh, right, I think we should talk about Rogers in particular and their outage that happened eight months ago that crippled a large part of the country's telecommunication system. And as a result, we saw on the news that, you know, 911 being temporarily down, people wasn't able to call the police. The online interact service system was not working for businesses and customers were left without, you know, network services for hours. And it's been eight months since this incident. So I want to ask you this. Has Roger's outage become a distant memory or is it a symptom of a larger problem that is not being addressed to previously or had not been paid attention to by either policymaker or lawmakers? Yeah, so that's that's a that's a terrific question. I mean, it, it was it's remarkable sort of what happened to parts of the country um, and to individual consumers when Roger's network went down and it was down for, for quite a while. I mean, and as you noted there, there's some dangerous implications of the network failing around 911, lack of connectivity in hospitals. And then, I mean, it just, just impacts on individual people not being able to access, interact. Maybe if folks were teleworking, not being able to work from home. I mean, all these sorts of things. So it was very problematic uh, for the country overall. Um, so in that sense, it's it's not a distant memory. Um, I mean, the national operators and some smaller operators um, signed a memorandum of understanding in the fall to, to work together to ensure that uh, issues like this, if they happen again, don't lead to the same kind of fallout that they did in, in this particular circumstance. I mean, Roger's outage, and I, I'm not an engineer, so I don't know the the, the, the technical uh, details of this totally. But I mean, my understanding is that they were doing routine maintenance and it caused a malfunction in, in the core network due to problematic code. Um, and Rogers was using a single core for routing all of their internet and wireless traffic. So when it went down, the whole network went down. Um, I mean, they, they should have used probably multiple cores so that there's more redundancy built into their network or conducted more thorough testing uh, before maintenance upgrades, um, et cetera. Um, and Rogers, according to the government, did not do a particularly good job of communicating to Canadians about the nature of the outage, when it would be back on and these sorts of things, which motivated uh, the, the government to to work or the CRTC to work towards this memorandum of, of understanding. But that was a Rogers outage. That wasn't a Canadian outage. It wasn't a Bell, a TELUS. Other operators did not have that issue. Um, Bell's network went down in the fall um, out east, and that was due to uh, extreme weather events. Mm -hmm. Now, there potentially there were things that Bell could have done there again, but that was an isolated bell outage. So it's important to take each outage for what it is, a particular company having some kind of issue at that time, and not think about it as being 
uh, germane to the entire telecom industry in Canada, nor to think that these outages are routinely happening. Um, this is why I think it's important to not kind of go a bit overboard here. Um, I think it's important that the operators find ways of building more redundancy and reliability into their networks, that they work together when these these issues happen, but it's also important for policymakers and perhaps others to understand that there are going to be outages here and there forever. I mean, sometimes you lose um, you lose power to your network, which is sort of outside of the control of the telcos, yep. or there could be uh, vandalism and cable theft, and sometimes that leads to small network outages. I mean, we're in a uh, a period of increasing harsh weather events, which could lead to network outages. So what we need in place is perhaps a bit more of a, a framework building off the MOU that was developed by the operators that can, um, that not necessarily to prevent such things, because these things can happen, uh, but really to have protocols in place. So if there is an outage, other operators can step up. Um, but this is not necessarily the time, I think, to kind of assume that there is something problematic with all networks in Canada or the telecommunications networks across the board. Outages happen in, in, in other countries as well. Uh, that's not to downplay it. It's just to appreciate sort of those inc incidents when they happen and the factors that cause those individual incidents and not to extrapolate sort of too much from them, except for sort of what we are already doing. And I mean, CRTC and ISET are thinking about these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you kind of addressed this before. Um, I just want to re-emphasize to our listener that the CNTRTC announced that 12 of the Canadians' biggest telecoms have signed this memorandum of understanding to provide emergency roaming mutual assistance and telecommunications to the public and governmental authorities during a critical network failure. So this is the memorandum that you were talking about previously. That's right, that's right. About this memorandum, I, I want to ask you, do you think this collaboration contrast can be sustainable in the long run? Or I guess an extended question would be, do you think there's any security concerns for one telecommunication company to provide uh, emergency services to the clients of another company? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a really great question. I think that any issues around the operators collaborating um, have been sorted out with uh, around the memorandum of understanding because the 12 operators came together with key folks from CRTC, I said, other key stakeholders to determine what the best path forward was. So any of those sorts of issues would have been sorted out, I believe, during the memorandum of understanding. I mean, perhaps the, 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 the challenge is maybe more that when it comes to competition, I mean, you can compete on price, you can compete on other aspects of network quality. And in Canada, the operators are competing on network quality. And network quality is its, its speed, its uh, latency, its reliability, its resiliency, um, redundancy. It's those kinds of things that operators are competing on that you would want to build into your network. And as you have more robust agreements across operators, you reduce the incentives to invest in those dimensions of network quality, which over time could have the unintended perverse consequence of eroding network capacity over time. Because if I know that other operators are just going to pick up my slack, if my network goes down, there's less incentive for me to have a world-leading network. So those are the kinds of things that are very important to take into consideration here, I think, when developing and thinking about um, 
about collaboration and coordination cooperation across the industry going forward. I think this is a particular moment when it's important to see sort of the bigger picture around the importance of networks to the country, as opposed to the way things can kind of go sometimes with 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 industry government sort of like back and forth. This just needs to be more of a collaborative piece, which is how it has been uh, thus far. Thank you for the response. Um, I guess I'm the same. We asked Professor McKelvey, Fenwick McKelvey, the same question. I want to ask you the same question. So, in addition to creating a crisis plan, do you think the government, as you mentioned, I did as well as CRTC, has used all of the tools at its disposal to ensure that our telecom networks serve to the public? Or I guess I could expand on this question. You don't have to answer this following question, but do you think the government should play a bigger role in regulating the telecommunication industry? Or on the other hand, should should it let the market to find its own equilibrium and adjust itself? Mm. So that that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, I, I would say that the government is already intervening quite heavily in Canada's oligopolistic telecom market. Um, and this is true in all countries around the world. Um, it is just the nature of telecom markets because of the need for um, uh, high levels of investment in network and in innovation that markets can only support three or four operators. Um, and as a result, uh, governments heavily regulate telecom in the same way that they they regulate um, air, they regulate pharmaceuticals, they regulate other 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 industries. So if you look at um, Canada, there's pretty heavy-handed regulation in some spaces. Canadian operators faced until recently retail price controls, so a 25% mandate to reduce wireless prices. As I mentioned, <coughs> Canada's spectrum policy leads to spectrum prices that are among the highest in the world. And that is a result of spectrum policy being designed to give regional operators and small independent players um, an ability to compete with the national operators, which hasn't worked out particularly well. Uh, the government has mandated access uh, for uh, mobile virtual network operators to, to the, the networks of the national uh, players. And there's, there's legislation around cybersecurity, um, AI, et cetera. So it's, it's a very heavy um, regulated space. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at the Canadian market compared to other markets internationally, we have three operators, which is in line with lots of other countries that are big and have small population densities. Pretty much all provinces have at least four carriers. Most urban areas have many uh, smaller operators. And if you look at Canada's wireless market compared to other OECD markets, we have the seventh lowest concentrated market. If you look at the HHI score, which is the, the main score of market concentration taken from industrial economics. Um, so when you look at the Canadian market, it's an oligopoly like every telecom market is in the world, but Canada's is somewhat less concentrated among those markets. And then within Canada, like in all countries in the world, we have a CRTC and we have an ISED that are heavily regulating the industry. And then in Canada, we have price controls, spectrum, a few other things that aren't present in other countries that are an added layer of regulation. So I think to your question, the government is already regulating the industry pretty heavily. So I would say there's probably not room for much more regulation. Mm -hmm. um, I do think there is obviously quite a lot of value in, in kind of 
allowing the market to do what a market does best, which is to allocate resources efficiently, which in this context is ensuring resources are allocated to operators and to companies that will use them efficiently, i.e. building networks. So you want, um, you want your national operators um, to be in a position where they um, are capitalized such that they can invest throughout the country and, and improve rates of rural and remote and indigenous uh, connectivity. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great response. The, the last question I have for you, I said I want to kind of zoom out from this uh, outage government regulation thing and ask you that telecommunication industry in Canada, just from your uh, our interview, it sounds like it is a very important part of the Canadian economy, right? And it seems like there's very important economic, social, as well as environmental impact of the telecom industry. Can you maybe tell us their uh, significance in these areas? I mean, I think telecom is a, a very exciting field to be working in at the moment or paying attention to. I mean, telecom intersects everything. I mean, it intersects the environment, it intersects artificial intelligence, privacy, cybersecurity. I mean, all of these global, super interesting, wicked problems are all intersected by telecom because telecom is sort of foundational uh, to the functioning of, uh, of a modern economy. If you step back and you think sort of what, what are the impacts of telecom networks to Canada? So I touched on earlier that basically all Canadians can access these networks and for the most part, and the network is among the best in the world. So what does that, what does that bring to people? Well, people, I mean, you saw this during the pandemic. I mean, people are using networks all the time to connect with their friends, families, etc. If you look at like the economic impact the Canadian telecom industry is already at 2% or so of Canada's GDP, uh, and estimates have it about doubling uh, over the next 20 years or so. Um, the telecom industry alone is, is likely to account for, I think, the fact that the stat is about 16% of Canada's GDP growth over the next uh, 20 years. And the industry provides very high-paying jobs to about 150,000 Canadians, Jobs about 20% higher than the, the mean wage in, in the service sector. So, I mean, there's, there's significant um, economic impacts there. And I think as you, if you take Canada as a small open economy that needs to compete globally, then innovation, trade, international competitiveness is particularly important for a country like Canada. Um, so having robust, reliable, high-performing networks is critical for all Canadian companies to to export internationally so there's like a a canadian how canada stands in the world compared to its other other peers um and then i think when you start to 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 get into some of the 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 social impacts here i mean they're they're also very significant I, i touched on the jobs piece but i mean networks are also very essential um for addressing issues around loneliness in for for older adults and 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 many other pieces like that, um, I, I think you can also look about the the impact of telecom networks around agriculture. Um, so bringing in new use use cases into ag as well as into other into other industries. I mean, there's there's estimates that greater rural connectivity and greater uptake of digital technologies in the agricultural industry can increase productivity 25% or so, which is critical as the world is in the middle of a, a food insecurity crisis. 
And then sort of last and not least, and very timely, I don't know, Vicky, if you saw the, the report that came out from the UN today about yeah. climate change, it's another damning report and extremely damning uh, where, I mean, people are going to have to make real wholesale changes to their, their lifestyles. Um, as this is one of the starkest reports from, from the IC, the IPCC uh, over some time. And I mean, telecom and digital can play a huge role in fighting addressing climate change. There's very credible studies now from academia, but also from multilateral organizations, World Economic Forum, OECD, et cetera, that show that greater access and adoption of broadband and digital technologies uh, can reduce GHG emissions by 15 to 25% over and above current levels. That's a huge chunk. Um, and oddly, no G7 country has telecom and digital as a core component of their climate action strategies, despite this uh, very significant potential to reduce GHGs. And we already saw this, this potential. I mean, at, in the early days of the pandemic, GHG reductions declined across all countries around the world because people were staying home and they were using connectivity instead of having to drive to the office, drive to the doctor, do all these sorts of other things. So I think it's, 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 pretty, uh, it's a pretty incredible potential here uh, to, to fight climate change um, with digital technology and with telecom. And that kind of applies across the board. I mean, you can think of, you know, in this day and age, telecom policy is climate policy or telecom mm -hmm. policy is economic policy. It's health policy. It's social policy because, I mean, digital technology and the digital transformation is, is so critical and so important to everybody's life that, I mean, telecom is sort of, uh, uh, really critical at the moment for, for virtually everybody. Um, and I mean, those, those impacts are, are very significant and they're across sort of all dimensions of the economy and, and society. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a super exciting and interesting and rewarding space to be working in uh, at the moment and, and lots of different things that you can get into. Thank you, Joe. I think that was a very good point to conclude our interview. And I personally, I have learned a lot from uh, our conversation. So thank you again for joining us. Oh yeah, it was it was my pleasure. I also feel like I learned a lot from from your questions as they make me try to consider sort of the uh, things I might not always be thinking through from the other side of things. So I, this was really great. It's oh, been a real okay. pleasure to talk to you about these these things. You have been listening to Beyond Headlines on CIUT eighty nine point five FM. We were joined today by Professor McCauley and Mr. Rosa. And thanks to them for coming on to the show of Canada's Telecom Monopoly. Today's show was produced by myself, He Yi Liu, Pretty Sharma, and Vicky Lee. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you are listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you miss any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts on our website at www.beyondheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you are a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond Headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussion out of the hallway and onto the airway.